Thank you, Preston, and uh, the worship team. Really appreciate them. Great music for getting, getting going this morning, getting pumped up. We were to a wedding in Corvallis last evening, and we got home late, and it took a lot to pump me up this morning. So uh, that's really great. Thank you. My name is Mark Ocker, and I've been around Harvest here for about 11 years with my wife, Marcia. And um, uh, by way of self-introduction, um, I've been a professor at George Fox University uh, 17 years before I retired this spring. And uh, now I guess that makes me a has-been. Uh, so anyway, I'm enjoying retirement and uh, whatever that is, haven't found out yet. Um, just changing priorities and as busy as ever. So that's great. We're going to take a look at uh, a parable that's uh, especially meaningful. When Matt and I were talking back a couple of months ago about uh, this particular parable, we uh, decided that it actually is going to take two Sundays to talk about it. Uh, because there are many and varied um, um, aspects to it, and it's a, uh, it's a really interesting and helpful uh, teaching for all of us. So we're resuming our study in parables this morning, and uh, parables that Jesus used in his teaching. And parables are wonderful tools. They're stories. And I think most of us in the room here today relate to stories in one way or another because we can either see ourselves in that story, in that drama, or uh, we can see other people who have gone through similar experiences. And what it does is helps us to understand varying points of a major truth. And Jesus was a great storyteller. Uh, he told lots of stories. He gave lots of examples in that way. And uh, so it's not surprising that he would use one of those as his teaching uh, methods. Often the um, parable that we're looking at now is called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, probably everyone in the room has a Bible that has headings at the, at the head of each section of the Bible. And this one has the heading, the prodigal son, or the parable of the prodigal son. And those can be helpful sometimes, but those were put in there by people at one time or another. The original Greek just reads straight on through. There are no um, headings in the Greek text. And uh, so these headings were put in sometime along in history to help us understand the different sections of the Bible. And sometimes they're not exactly right on. And this is one of those, I think. It does indeed tell the story of a prodigal son, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Because in this parable, we're talking about two sons and their father. Two sons actually with issues they're dealing with, and a father who expresses unlimited grace in each of the situations. 
Now we can look at Luke 15. Uh, Preston read uh, verses 11 through 32. We can look at that uh, entire chapter of the book of Luke and um, we can see a couple of things. We can see three short stories possibly with the same theme or we can see one story, one parable with three aspects to it. So depending on how you look at that, um, you may have a slightly different uh, emphasis or thought about what it, what it really involves. But the theme that runs through it is grace for the lost and found. Grace for the lost and found. Now it was brilliant of Jesus to use the example of two sons. And I'm sure there's lots of people in the room here today who have two sons or two daughters or a daughter and a son or any combination there. Or if you're not, uh, if you don't have kids, uh, you've observed kids in other families. So you have an idea of, of uh, what is being talked about here. It's a real study in contrasts. And we find that all children are not the same. <laughs> they can come from the same family, from what we think to be the same upbringing, with all the same um, rules and regulations and expressions of grace, but they turn out differently for some strange reason. My dad's side of the family has uh, a number of sets of twins. And I remember getting confused about looking at some of them and distinguishing who they were. But when I got to know their minds and their hearts, they were very different. Very different. As I was putting this sermon together this morning, I, I uh, thought of one of my own sons. You know, uh, especially when I was looking at the part about rebellion. The rebellion of the first son. I thought of uh, one of my own sons, and I pulled a note out that he had uh, written to me in 19, well, in the 1990s sometime when he was a junior in high school. And I had to laugh at it because I thought, uh, wow, this was really a rebellious kid. And I think it really reflects uh, how rebellious he really was. Uh, he worked at a, uh, at a mini-mart about five miles from our house in Michigan. And that mini-mart was located in, in kind of a resort area, Manitow Beach area. And uh, so he, uh, he worked there. And summers, he would work a lot of times the late shift. And he would get off at 11 or midnight. And he'd come home, and he'd have to wind down a little bit. And then he'd go to sleep and get up about lunch the next day. You know how that goes. Anyway, one morning... I had to take the uh, car in to be fixed into the nearest largest town, which was about 15 miles away. And um, the morning I was to leave, I found this note lying on the kitchen table, and it had some, you know, uh, cash under it, and there was a quarter sitting on top of it. And I said, what's this about? So I read the note, and it says, Dad, attention. And attention was in big, bold letters capitalized on your way home from the break shop could you please double underline please pick up a pepperoni pizza from Pizza Hut large if you and or mom want some for lunch or medium if neither one of you do either way is fine with me this money should be more than enough to cover it I even enclosed the quarter so you can call them ahead of time and not have to wait for it 
pre-cell phone, of course. If this will be a bother, don't worry about it. Now here's the build-up. If this will be a bother, don't worry about it, but it sure would be nice to have some. Now, the rebellion. You may not think I should spend my money on this, but what could I buy that could be better? Nothing! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! If you do get a pizza, in parentheses, please, double underline. If you do get a pizza, please, and I'm asleep when you get home, please wake me up. Have a good day. Love, Jared. And on the other side, uh, and on the side it says, uh, please get it right before you leave town so it stays hot. That was the height of the rebellion for that particular son. Uh, he wasn't like me at all. Uh, he's uh, very mild-mannered and uh, very different than me. Well, to get to the heart of this parable, Jesus was being criticized by the Pharisees. That's the big opener. He was criticized by the Pharisees, those self-righteous, self-absorbed, keepers of the law, and he was being criticized for associating with and eating with sinners. Can you imagine? I mean, if our melodrama team this afternoon wants to have a good melodrama, this would be it. The Pharisees were kings of melodrama. You know, they really were. Jesus eating with sinners. You know, it was just, it was outrageous what they did. And it illustrates that they missed the whole point for Jesus, God himself, coming here to live among people. But there are some illustrations here where Jesus begins to bring out the message to the Pharisees and say, uh, wait a minute, boys, we've got something else here to think about. And in the first illustration, and we're not, we're not concentrating on these first two stories, other than the fact we're going to mention them, the shepherd and the lost sheep. Here we have a story of a, uh, of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep in the pen, and one strays off for whatever reason. And the shepherd goes out to find that one sheep. And for any of you who have seen some of the classic paintings on that, you, you can see the shepherd there holding on to a uh, a tree branch or something and leaning over the edge of a, of a cliff and he has his uh, uh, shepherd's staff with the crook in it and he's reaching down and grabbing the sheep, pulling it back up and he walks back to the sheep pen with the sheep around his shoulders and restores it to the sheep pen, brings it back. And what is that cause for, does the scripture say? Celebration. He found the lost sheep. And the second illustration is the woman with the lost coin. A lost silver coin. It says she had ten coins. And each of those coins probably was designated for some specific purpose. The scripture indicates that she was a poor woman. And she had really saved her, her coins. <laughs> and each one was for a purpose. Might have been for rent, for food, for who knows for what. You know, Dave Ramsey had nothing over on this lady. He talks about every dollar having a name. Every coin had a name. And she lost one. And she searched diligently. She said all over the house she searched. 
and she swept the floor and she did all kinds of things to find that coin and she found that coin and the scripture indicates there was great cause for celebration yeah cool in the gang celebrate yeah Hey, <laughs> um, but uh, the plot thickens here when we look at the third illustration, and that's the one that we're really concentrating on today. The man had two sons, and uh, they were to receive their father to, father's inheritance at some time. It doesn't say specifically when, but they were to receive the inheritance. But the younger son goes to the father, and he demands his inheritance now. I want it now. And he was tired of, he was tired of uh, uh, being under his father's roof and jurisdiction and following his father's rules and his boring life. And he wanted to be free to be himself. And don't we hear that a lot these days? I want to be free to be myself. Well, what is myself other than having been created by the father for good purposes? But he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. And during those days, it was quite unconventional for, especially for a demand to be made for an inheritance. That was unheard of. But for whatever the reason, the father released the inheritance, and the younger son took his portion, which would have been a third of the, in, of the inheritance, took a third of it, and shortly after receiving that, left home. And he was free to be himself. And we were told that he spent all of the inheritance on reckless living. Reckless living. And we get an idea of what that meant when the older son addressed the father at one point and said, uh, he, the younger son, he devoured all your property with prostitutes. I think that pretty clearly explains the gravity of reckless living for this particular son. And not only was this son in a, in a fix because he spent all the inheritance, but there was a big famine that came along. There wasn't enough to eat in the land where he was. And he became pretty desperate. So he hired out as a farmhand, hoping he could make the ends meet. And his job? His job was to feed the pigs. And he got so far down that he, he said that uh, he would have loved to have had the slop the pigs had to eat. He was so hungry. But he said no one would give him anything. Verse 17 reveals something that I think is really important. It says, but when he came to himself. And what that means is when he got his right mind back, when he got the mind God had given him to make wise decisions. That happened at that point. It took some difficult experiences for him to reach that stage. I don't know if there are any others of you like me in here, but um, I, I know coming to, to my right mind sometimes is difficult. And... Um, You've heard the story about having to hit the donkey in the forehead with a two-by-four to get his attention. The Lord's hit me a lot of times with four-by-fours, and he still does occasionally. Uh, but 
sometimes it takes that, it takes an experience like this to really bring us to the point where we recognize that God is the one who calls the shots. Well, the younger son determined that he would go back to his father and he would plead for mercy. And his true motivation for deciding this isn't really expressly clear in the scripture, but he decided to do it anyway. And he said, I'm going to tell him I've sinned against heaven before you even treat me as a servant, but please take me back. So he was pleading to the father for that. But interestingly enough, he didn't even have time to give his rehearsed speech. The scripture says his father came running to him. Came running to him. And then there was a big celebration because the son had come back. And as the story goes on, the older son, this man's older son was in the field and he was working. And he comes back in toward the house from working and he sees and hears all of this partying going on. There's music, there's dancing, there's food. What's going on? You know, I got left out of this. So he calls a servant over to him and asks what was happening. And the servant told him that his brother had come home and his, fa his father was throwing a big party to celebrate. Now, when we think about that, we think, wow, isn't that great? You know, when we read it, read it from the biblical perspective, isn't that wonderful? Here the son came back and they're restored and so forth. Well, the older son became very angry. And he wouldn't go into the party. So it says his father came out and talked with him. And what he told his father was, he said, listen. He said, I've kept all your commands. I've obeyed, obeyed all your rules but you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends, and here he gets a fattened calf. And all of that, even after he devoured all of his inheritance on prostitutes. But the scripture says the father entreated him. That means pled with him. Please, come in. All that I have is mine. Uh, all that I have that's mine is yours. And it's always been that way. But your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. We aren't told what happened to the older brother beyond that point, but a good assumption might be that he was an unhappy man the rest of his life because he couldn't bring himself to show grace to his brother. In a book written by Tim Keller, he says that elder brothers or elder sisters have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. Now that doesn't mean just age-wise. It means, as we're reading it in the context of this parable, they hold grudges long and bitterly, look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles, experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery, 
have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives, and have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. What a terrible picture of life. And it is indeed a terrible picture of life. There's one more story in the Bible um, that's, that's a major story that illustrates all three of, or both of these sons actually, the first one in rebellion and the second one with anger and contempt, and that is Jonah. For those of you who remember the story of Jonah, the people of Nineveh were evil, and they were doing all kinds of evil things, and God wanted Jonah to go and warn them and say, I'm going to pass judgment. Please repent of your sin. And so what Jonah do? He ran away, or thought he could run away. And he jumped on a ship, and he headed for the town of Tarshish. And as they were on the ship, there came a big storm, and they thought they were going to, you know... Um, capsize. And he started throwing things off the, off the ship, trying to stay upright, and he knew it was hopeless. Was the, as they uh, began to study the situation, they realized that Jonah was the cause, and he was thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish, the story says. And he also repented of his rebellious attitude. I think I would if I was in there amongst all the slime and the anchovies and all those things swimming around in the belly of a fish. I would think twice. And he did, and he repented. And God told the fish to vomit him out onto the seashore, and he did. And what does the Scripture say? Jonah went to Nineveh. Well, Jonah warned the people, and they repented of their evil. We think, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Even the king, he took his robe off and, and put on sackcloth and sat in ashes and wailed and moaned and cried out for mercy, which was the habit of that day. The, and Jonah, when he heard of that, was very angry for he didn't share God's grace. Here these people are so evil, and you saved them. Who do you think you are, God? And his anger turned to contempt, loathing for sinners, loathing for God, loathing for himself. A sad, sad situation. And as I have on the screen there, uh, so many times I wonder, God sees what we do, what we don't do, and just <sighs> sighs. <laughs> Why? Why do you make life so hard? So what's the point of the parable? You remember I said the story of, it was of two sons and their father, and it has two parts. Well, this is the first part that we're looking at this Sunday. 
And what this points out to the Pharisees and to us is that human beings are rebellious. Can we deny that we're rebellious? Um, you know, and that's the result of the fall. Read the story of Adam and Eve and, and beyond, and, and we can find out um, what that's about. But we can fall into the error of saying, I'm not rebellious. I'm not a rebellious person. And yet, can we always answer these questions with a yes? Do we always do what we know to be right? Do we always avoid doing what we know to be wrong? Hmm. Puts us in kind of a bad way, doesn't it, when we think of it that way? Do we ever run from God, possibly by acknowledging something isn't right, but it won't hurt if I do it just one more time and then I'll quit? <laughs> do we get so deep in the, in, in mired down in sin that we've given up on being rescued from it? We lose hope. Or like the older brother, do we have anger and contempt over other people or the way God wants things to be? Being self-righteous rule keepers like the Pharisees who hold others to our standards. I thought of a, a church that I pastored um, at one time. I remember a man coming into the worship service and uh, I, I knew who he was. I had met him once before and heard stories and so forth. And uh, another man from the church caught me after the service and he said, uh, do you know who that was? And I said, yeah, I know who that was. And he said, do you know he's a drinker? Yeah, I know he's a drinker. Well, he should be cleaning himself up before he should be coming in here. And it's the closest I ever came to going ballistic. But and I thought, and I told him, I said, you have it backwards. We come to the Father. He cleans us up. We come to the Father first. And who are we to say that they must go by our rules? And where this really came into stark reality for me, and then I'll close, where this came into stark reality for me is when we really have life situations of our own that we have to answer questions about how we would respond And as you're noticing this, this parable, yes, it concentrates on the, on the younger son coming back after living a life of reckless uh, living. But the point that he was trying to get across to the Pharisees was that they were so self-righteous 
judging others. And where this came into stark reality for me, and it, it has before, and I thought, what an appropriate way to think about this. This last Wednesday, um, we went to a parole board hearing at the Ohio State or the Oregon State Penitentiary. Uh, back in 1988, there was a man who murdered my wife's brother. And uh, um, so her two sisters and their husbands, and we go every two years for parole board hearing. And he's been in prison 28 years now. And the parole board decided on another four years this time instead of two because of some other circumstances. But I asked myself the question, what if he actually repented? What if he actually repented and turned to God? How would I respond? Boy, that's where it really comes home. <laughs> How would I respond if he gave his life to Christ? Would I celebrate that? Or would I be angry and full of contempt that he was taken into God's family after doing this? It's a good question. Would I would rejoice with the Father? Or would I be a Pharisee? It's amazing how God drives home his truths using our own life circumstances, isn't it? Well, this parable is a, a very powerful one, and I think it illustrates our condition. But it also thunders from heaven about the, the reality of God's grace. Because both of these sons had opportunity to be shown grace by the Father. And that's what we're going to drill down to next Sunday. And we'll go deeper into the meaning of grace, the action of the Father for these two sons, with these two sons. And we'll get a glimpse of the greatest love story ever told. Once again. So, by way of commercial, please join us next week for the rest of the story. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your great grace. It's just beyond our understanding how you can show so much grace to your, to your creation. how you love us, how you come to live in us and move us and help us to reflect on what we really are and who we are 
but that in the face of all of that, we are loved by you. And so, Father, help us to self-reflect this week. Are we more like an older brother or a younger brother? And, and Father, help us as we think about this and reflect on this to actually become more like the Father, full of grace. Thank you so much for bringing us here together this morning to worship together and to fellowship together and bless this time after our worship service that um, we can continue on in the fellowship of grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.